X-Ray. And welcome to the Beer Vana Podcast. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Patrick. You know, I have to say, uh, we don't talk about the weather much anymore because we don't have any windows down here. I know. We it, used to be, it used to be the main way we introduced the podcast was to look out the window and start talking. I know. And, and which is a sh- sure sign of amateurism. <laughs> well, well, it's also a sign of Portlandism because yeah. we're, we have very little weather, which means we're unduly focused on it. My point is, unlike most of the rest of the United States, we've had just an absolutely delightful summer. I know. Spectacular. It's been beautiful. It re- but, but. Don't. I don't want to hear There's it. some hot weather coming. No. Hot weather coming. Ooh. But it's only a couple of days. We can yeah. handle that. Yeah, last, That's the thing. Last we can summer al- was like, you know, Dante's Inferno. I know. We can always handle a little <laughs> bit, but we can't handle the, yeah. But down duty. here in the studios of X-Ray FM in the Falcon Art Building. Well, I almost said arts. I know. Falcon it, it, Art Building. We should change that. It sounds better. Falcon Arts. Yeah, it doesn't. Yeah. Uh, we don't have windows, so we don't talk too much about it. As always, we are recording here with our producer, Simon. Say hi, Simon. I don't, I don't know if you can hear that. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't know. Uh, Will has stepped out, so my son, Simon, is at the controls. So all audio problems, blame him. That's right. <laughs> uh, this is the Beer Bible Podcast. With me, as always, is Jeff Allworth. He is the author of several books, including The Beer Bible and The Widmer Way, and about to work on The Beer Bible too. I the am. New Testament. Yeah, or we may talk about that a little bit if we have time. Which is good because last time I was in Powell's, uh, the beer section is kind of right. If you walk into one entrance, it's sort of... So I always kind of just turn my head to look at the beer shelf. There were I no, do too. There were no Bibles. Damn it. They're bad about that. There my were, hometown... Br- there were no Bibles. My, my hometown uh, bookseller should have them always. Yeah. It's really irritating. Uh, Get on that, Powell's. Yeah, I don't know how I pray to the beer gods without my Bible. Yes. Uh, the Widmer Way, Secrets of Master Brewers... And other things, probably. Indeed. Uh, and you are Patrick Emerson. I am. A professor of economics at Oregon State University. Yeah, and sadly, in a few days, I'll be back. Oh. I know. Speaking of summer. <laughs> the the whole world sighs at thinking of that you, you are not, work, work. <laughs> not working at all for three months. That must be hey a now. load to hey carry. Now. Hey now. I do a lot of work, <laughs> just not on contract. Okay. Yes, I've seen you do a lot of work. All right. Uh, so before we get started, what you do though is is so profound that you know. Well, you can't. It can't be measured by the scut hours you put into when, it, well, but when, by the but by the mana that flows from your brain. When you think so deeply and so intensely as I do, those nine months of the school year about subjects so big, you know, your brain has to take a rest. That's right. You have to give your brain a rest. It gets, it gets overheated. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it takes about three months in the summer. A few crates of beer. Well, <laughs> well, back to the salt mines with you. So uh, this is kind of exciting. Before we get started, we have to mention that we'd like to thank the Freem Family Brewers for sponsoring this episode of the Beervana Podcast. You can find Freem Family Brewers in Hood River, Oregon and at freembeer.com. And I have to spell that for you because there's a P yep. that you don't hear. It's P-F-R-I-E-M-B-E-E-R.com. Freem Beer. Freembeer.com. We're going to talk a little bit more about Freembeer in a moment. But first, uh, we'll do some talking about other stuff. <laughs> Sorry. That was, that was smooth. That was smooth, wasn't wow. it? Yeah. But yeah, uh, that's what happens when you suddenly get a sponsor after years of, of nothingness. You hitch up. 
Yeah. Yeah. All right. So today, uh, these lazy summer days start to give way to activity. Uh, uh, I'm going to try that again. As the lazy summer days start to give way to the activity of autumn, a whole raft of interesting events has happened. So we're going to spend this episode just discussing beery things, uh, including some very big acquisitions that happened and uh, a big one that didn't. Uh, we're also delighted to discuss our new sponsor, so we'll talk about that. Uh, we'll spend some time discussing uh, the trip uh, uh, to... <laughs> on. <laughs> I hope that when your new book comes out, you'll have fixed this kind of stuff. I'm going to read this verbatim. No, don't do it. Yes. Uh, we're going to spend some time discussing the trip to on which Europe Jeff's about to embark. Okay, and then I'm going to decode that message. Jeff's going to go to Europe soon, Yeah. and we're going to talk about that trip. Actually, you're going to be doing research for the New Testament of the Beer Bible. I'm a writer, not an editor. Just <laughs> FYI. Uh, editors are dead, so you better be both. Yeah, that's true. Uh, get on the bandwagon. All right. And the mailbag's overflowing. It is. Is it really? Well, we have three. Fantastic. Uh, yeah, I, know. I also have a random text we could throw in there if we're getting bored. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, without further ado, uh, let's get to the news. <laughs> All right, and we're going to start our news with a few of the smaller stories. We're going to go from small to big, working to the big stuff, yes. beginning with our favorite time of the year, harvest season. And although it feels early, the first of the fresh hop beers have come to the market in the Northwest. It does feel early. It does. Yeah. Uh, fresh hop beers are made when the hops are freshly picked and rushed undried to the waiting breweries. Often they're used in kettles and whirlpool whirlpools, although these first beers out are made with dry hop additions added to finished beer. Uh, as always, we can't wait for more. Breweries around here can take a truck down to the hop fields and start brewing by the same evening. Yeah, and that's uh, the reason these breweries have been able to get them out so fast is because they've got finished beer and then when they get a call from a, a hop grower that one of the early oh. crops is in they just throw them in oh. you know leave them there a couple of days and then boom it's on the market and you get a little bit of a fresh hop character in those beers and they're out in the market early and yeah. these will the harvest is still the bulk of the harvest is still uh, a week off probably uh, so many beers will be made with those in the brewing process so it'll mm -hmm. take two or three weeks after that so you're looking at late September early October is really the best yeah. time for they're those. starting to get better at dealing with fresh hops in the hot side as well but oftentimes yeah. a really nice beer is one that's just uh, just uh, cold side additions where you get a little of that fresh hop character yeah not. I think I think maybe in the whirlpool too a yeah. dash in the whirlpool and then a cold side addition yeah, yeah. It's, it's taken a, there was a a period of time when there was a purity test and it's like oh it's got to be all fresh hops and that's the only way to do it and yeah. these things tasted like, <laughs> like you know crap. they were terrible uh, it, it tasted it, like eating a sort of a handful of weeds and yeah, yeah. wet kind of half composted weeds it yeah. was not it was not that, but, that you know, was not a good thing. but last week we had van havig on he was talking about the sort of specialty knowledge that american brewers have now and this is one of the things that they've developed that other people have no idea how to deal with these things when you when you brew Within uh, a couple hour drive of the hop fields, you start learning these things. It's pretty cool. That's right. And what we learned uh, is that the character that the hop that you care about 
when it's undried is the mm-hmm. the oils that are in those, which are very evanescent. So you don't want right. to destroy those, put them in the boil. You lose all the advantage anyway. And then you get all the disadvantage, which is this wet vegetable All the vegetable matter. stuff, yeah, yeah, that starts coming through. Cool. All right. So the second item is also about hops. And uh, I'll just read it. <laughs> Good luck. Yeah, that was just... Hopefully it's well-written. I'm off my game. I apologize to the uh, to the listener. Uh, so in other hop news, uh, Coleman... What? what? They don't know the difference. This is, this is your game. <laughs> For better or worse. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, Coleman Farms, Independence, Oregon, had an event describing research uh, they're doing on hop terroir. Uh, the research examines how the same hops grown on different fields around the Willamette Valley express their flavors. To conduct the research, Coleman brought in hop breeders, soil scientists, and hop researchers to conduct different aspects of the study. The results are preliminary, but confirm that hops do vary even when grown just a few miles apart. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so I, I went to this event where they had all those scientists, and they talked about uh, <clears throat> the first year, which was would, was 2018, mm-hmm. uh, that they conducted the study, and they have three, Coleman Farms has three fields. Uh, I think... They're they're several miles apart, like twenty miles apart. Uh-huh. So you know, not not just down the road, um, and they they have different, uh, slightly different soils. They have slightly different uh, wind patterns and and uh, air, you know, water availability. And so right. they the terroir is actually distinctive enough so that they're uh, able to uh, take from an empirical sense, like look at the soil science, look at uh, the days. Uh, 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 the temperature for each field, which mm-hmm. varies, believe it or not. Um, some are at different elevations. Elevation and, can matter a lot, yeah. Yeah, and then eventually they harvest the the hops and make beers. They send those over to Tom Shellhammer, who we've had on the pod, and he mm-hmm. and his team taste those. And in 2018, they looked at Centennial and Sterling hops. And the interesting thing, uh, which turns out is, I guess, fairly common, but was interesting to me, is that um, the variation was greater among the centennials than it was among the sterling. Huh. Yeah. Any reason? Uh, yeah, there's actually even a term for this, but it's um, some uh, plants express greater sensitivity to uh, uh, terroir right. than others. And so sterling are more, you know, more, they, they don't express terroir as much as centennial. So I have a question that's related to this uh, that you may or may not know the answer to, but uh, I always sort of uh, heard that hops were very sensitive and hard to grow and that's why they're grown in such small uh, parts of of the world. Uh, But I also uh, feel like uh, hop growing has started to expand quite dramatically in the United States. So are hops that hard or is it just that they ended up in these certain areas? Uh. Well, they're hard. Yeah, they're hard in some ways. Uh, they're a really weird specialty crop mm-hmm. that has to be put on trellises, mm-hmm. so it's expensive. Um, but I mean, to climate, I mean, to the local weather, uh, is it something that can only be grown in very, very small parts of the world, or, or is, or is that just sort of how it ended up because that's where they grew best? Well, two things there. One is it can no, the a commercially viable hop has to be grown in certain uh, bands of latitude, mm-hmm. so. We're talking about the northern United States, mm-hmm. so that that that's an issue. If you try to grow these hops in in Florida, you can grow hops in Florida, but you're not going to get the same kind of yield from okay. uh, an acre. So it doesn't make commercial sense to right. be down there. All right. 
But the other thing is blight, right? So yeah. uh, there were there were hop crops in originally in New York and Wisconsin, and both of those were wiped out by blights. So the cool thing that we have uh, in California, which the hop uh, uh, industry has has left California, but it was a big deal there in the late nineteenth and early twentieth century. Oregon and Washington is we have really dry summers, and so that's good for uh, keeping blight down. Right. So yeah, you and, and Idaho too. Uh, so you can um, you can grow them elsewhere, and we're starting to see industries develop, particularly in Michigan. Um, and New York is trying to re- restart them. Yeah. But so that's I mean the point was about terroir. So if you're going to have if you're going to start pushing the terroir, then then it's more interesting the more uh, geographically dispersed. Totally. Yeah. I mean I I'm very excited about that. I would love to see. Yeah. What Michigander hops taste like, and if they're different, is a does a you know is a cat for one thing is a cascade different in Michigan than it right. is in, in Oregon, and more to the point, is there some hop that that is more predisposed just generally for Michigan, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, English hops taste yeah. different than German hops. And that's probably about at the same distance as, uh, Oregon and, and Michigan. So, right. you know, it would be cool to see like a whole new vein of different kinds of hops that were unique to Michigan or yeah. the, the upper Midwest. Yeah. And I wonder if craft, I mean, I, I understand the idea of commercial valuability, but with the boom of the craft beer industry, particularly in other parts of the United States that might sort of create local hop even if they're less productive, local hop fields might get planted. Yeah, and we're seeing that. Uh, we're seeing little little hop fields kind of all over the, the right. country. Right. And right. I, I, you know, it's just, you're an economist, so you know how things, this, cl- this clustering mm-hmm. really affects things. And there's a reason why we see in agriculture so much of the hops, are, or so, much, so many crops are grown in one place. It's because it gets streamlined and it goes into the, the food chain in a particular easy way. And so you have all the <clears throat> hop growers out here in, in Oregon, Washington, and Idaho. You have the universities doing research there. You have the big hop uh, brokers doing, you know, so you have all, it, it, yeah. now it's streamlined. So what's it, that called? What's that, <laughs> what's that process all about? Uh, well, supply chain. Yeah, I but I mean, that why, why, why do industries uh, coagulate in certain places. What's that process? Oh, oh, well, geography matters a lot. So, so what's interesting? Uh, uh, yeah, we're getting off track here. But uh, what's interesting in economics is how much, uh, even in this era of modern technology and information technology, how much proximity matters. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I might have mentioned this in the pod before, but there's a really uh, interesting study. It's probably old now. It's pretty old now, but um, talking about how much uh, borders matter in trade. Mm. And the fascinating thing is that that you'd think something like the Canadian border is really a mild, might be a mild impediment, right? Because yeah. we speak mo- pretty much the same language. I know there's two languages in, in Canada, but, uh, you know, we're neighbors, we're right here. There's big interstates that sort of plow right through the border, and it seems like trade would be really easy. Um, but the currencies are different, mm-hmm. and uh, borders tend to, to have a huge impact. So if you look at, I don't know, the difference between, you know, uh, trade between... Uh, let's say Michigan and Indiana, uh, they're neighboring, right? <laughs> my, my Midwest geography. I grew up in Wisconsin, I should know this. Uh, versus Michigan, Michigan and Ohio, for sure. Michigan and, and Ontario. Oh, Michigan and Ohio, that's probably what I'm thinking. Yeah. yeah. Uh, no, there is a little part where Gary, Indiana. Yeah. yeah. But you're yeah. right, Ohio's a better one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, actually, yeah, anyway. Okay. Uh, I think Indiana's better than Ohio. Oh, uh, I don't know. It's 
speaking of, so the point is <laughs> well, we're way off track, the point yeah. is that that uh, michigan also uh right across from detroit has ontario there and so there's right. actually it's it, there's much more trade uh, across state borders than there is across the international border uh that's a really sort of long-winded way of basically saying that well, uh geography matters geography matters a lot and it's not just in terms of um uh ingredients and component parts but it but it's in terms of talent and knowledge and uh, all this stuff gets shared locally. Um, so anyway, uh, one one other thing I want to ask you really quickly is how much, how big, uh, I'm trying to think about a good way, a good metric for this, but I'm just thinking of the size of a hot field relative to the yield. Like uh, our hot fields. I think it's about 2,000 pounds of hops per acre or, okay. or 2,500 pounds per acre, something like that. And they vary by... Uh, uh, variety a little bit. So right now we're in this interesting situation where there are more acres planted of citra, but it's a less yield, uh, okay. has a lower yield than cascades. Uh, I see. So cascades are still competitive in terms of uh, the amount of pounds of hops. So yeah. Right. So citra has overtaken cascade in terms of acres planted, but cascade is still producing. I think cascade is still close. A, a clo- yeah. yeah. Last year for sure that was the case. And I don't know, the trends may have gotten far enough yeah. apart now that... Uh, my point is, if you've got a bunch of craft brewers in around, I don't know, let's say Gary, Indiana. By the way, you're right on the Indiana, uh, Michigan thing. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I do, I do have. You lived, you lived there longer than I did, so I, I, I don't feel any. Shame. <laughs> okay, but my point is that if you were like a bunch of craft brewers in and around sort of uh, Northwest Indiana, then it, it doesn't take a huge amount of land uh, to create a little hop field to try to produce hops for those brewers yeah i would guess that's right uh you, you know the thing is you have to uh find out is is your is your crop going to be uh uh can you grow those hops inexpensively enough to make um the price point worth it for the brewer sure. yeah. and then is the quality is is good enough that the brewer is going to you know pay a potential premium and all like yeah. I'm, what i'm talking anyway, to an economist yeah. you know but we'll you see know about that. i guess the the proof is in the pudding so we'll see how yeah. hops expand and anyway may, terroir may become more and more important and i mean we should also note that all those other states uh constitute something like less than a percent of the acreage planted right. relative <laughs> to the three states in the pacific northwest so they've got a ways to go to catch up uh yeah so oh wait a minute so there's a lot of hops in idaho uh yeah actually idaho has now overtaken oregon huh <gasps> Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. Shut your mouth. Uh, the uh, Anheuser Busch uh, oh, fields are in I northern see. Idaho. Yeah, so well, that doesn't count. Yeah. Um, that's, that's so there cheating. you go. <laughs> it is interesting. The um, at some point we're gonna have a hot breeder come on that I met uh, at this project, and he'll talk about. Uh, he was the the guy who created. Uh, he bred the strata hop. Ah, the strata. So we'll talk to him a little bit about the different, the ways the industries present themselves differently in these three states, because it is fascinating how they're different. Um, there are ways in which, the really key ways in which they look different as an, uh, their role in the industry. So that'll be interesting. Cool. Okay. In a bit of local news, uh, local brewery, one of our favorites, Breakside Brewing, their owner, Scott Lawrence, announced that he was setting up an employee stock ownership program or an ESOP. Uh, Lawrence sold 30% of his 95% share into a trust set up by the company. Uh, brewing head Bed- Ben Edmonds, a uh, friend of the pod, owns the remaining 5%. You can go back to our archive and look for our interview with which Ben. Was, 
which I think that was the podcast about fresh hop beer. So that's all coming together. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Uh, Breakside currently employs. Uh, <laughs> God, here you go again. Break, breaks. I'm going to fix your English. Thank you. Breakside currently employs 160 people across three facilities. I'm trying to go to Europe, and we're doing a major renovation. <laughs> I don't have time to. <laughs> To, to write, to have, write good English. To have, to screw me, around with the niceties of your polite language, me, buddy. Me write good. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. Uh, that's interesting. So, um, Breakside. Yeah, that is that's kind of a cool thing. Uh, I was, uh, what I was about to say is that uh, Full Sail, way back when, did an ESOP as well. Right. Are they still? Uh, no, they the the. The employee owners of Full Sail sold, sold private out, equity. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I remember that now. <laughs> and I think it's interesting in this case that only thirty percent and now is going into the ESOP um, yeah. because that means that Scott Lawrence is still going to be making the shot, calling the shots in terms of the direction of the, the company and all. Right, because Ben has five. Thirty uh, percent goes to the employees, so that's only thirty-five percent. So yeah. yeah, he still has controlling shares. Yeah, and I I think that probably makes sense when a Brewery is only ten years old. Maybe you know if you're an established uh, old time brewer. Yeah, ESOPs uh, are kind of controversial in the business sense. Like, are they good or bad for performance? The idea is that you give employees a stake in the actual performance of the company. So, uh, but their history has been a little bit mixed. Yeah, there's some, there's some, especially in breweries. There's some sense that maybe they get a little risk averse and right. they kind of. Yeah. So they, they try to protect their net. They're not risk takers like the entrepreneurs who set it up. They're workers. So yeah. it's different. Yeah, it's a different incentive model. We'll see what happens. Breakside's one of our faves. So hopefully everything goes well. It is. And I think this is a, I think this is a great uh, development for them. And, and at 30%, it seems like it's, it allows them to be, have skin in the game and, you know, be everybody pulling in the same direction and also still have uh, kind of a, a nice direction from the ownership side. So. Yeah, and Breakside's one of those businesses that has sort of just been gone from strength to strength. Like, they've almost had no missteps as far as I can tell. Yeah, I agree. Um, so, uh, I don't love their logo. I love the old chair and that weird okay, swirly thing. Okay, uh, that's well, true. I think you you and I both agree that their they're rebranding was a little of a misstep, although that's personal opinion. God knows how the market, what matters is what the market says. It has not slowed them down at all. No, it hasn't slowed them down at all. We but, ha- but we yeah, ha- we have but to I dig- don't love it. I love the old one. We have to dig pretty deep for a quibble with that brewery. <laughs> uh, you once told me, but I don't know if we mentioned this on the pod, but you once told me that the breakside has to do with some kind of ultimate term. About yeah, and that weird little swirly thing is it's, like a frisbee. It's thing. supposed to be like a fri- the circle of a fr- uh, the spinning of a frisbee. I'm guessing it has to do with which way the frisbee kind of breaks to the left or right depending on the spin. I think so. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I don't yeah. play enough frisbee to tell you. All right. Uh, well. Uh, we should take a break before continuing on to more news, and we should stop and introduce our brand new sponsor to the fun podcast. Yes, let's do that. And bef- and while we do that, why don't we bust out a? Uh, I I thought maybe I hope that um, Freem is not the last brewery that we welcome as one of our sponsors. Uh, maybe they'll be the permanent brewer- brewery. I don't know, but in any case, it seems like it would be cool to. Uh, celebrate this with one of their beers yeah so we'll talk a little bit about the brewery but we also have a beer in front of us pretty exciting because uh speaking of fave breweries freem has been one of our faves so we don't just uh reach out to anybody right we we do view these things as partnerships and uh we we'd like to uh work together with a brewery that that we admire and then we can just talk about the brewery and over the coming weeks we'll do that uh and we do admire 
Frame Brewing. Um, yeah, I don't think this is a controversial position. Yeah, and speaking of uh, of marketing, uh, they have very elegant labels, very ele- elegant bottles. I think they've uh, done an incredibly good job with this. Um, uh, they are spelled with a P to begin with, so we should make sure that's clear. If you're looking for them in the marketplace, they're P F uh, uh, R. I E M R I E M. Yeah, you. I was making sure I got the E and the I right. And there's a couple of challenges there because some people I've heard who have not heard the brewery pronounced get the P is silent, and and if you look at a bottle that they have the P is small and the F is capitalized. Yes. To emphasize that, but then uh, it's not clear. It's it's Eam. So sometimes I've heard heard people say Frem. It's not Frem. It's Frem, Frem. or Frame. Or yeah. Maybe I don't know. There's a lot of ways you could do it. Uh, and yeah. it's and it was founded by Josh Frame. So that's where that name comes. Yeah. From. So tell 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 the listeners a little bit about Josh and his background. All right, I'll do that if you open this bottle. Oh, I'd love to open this bottle. This is a cork and cage bottle, by the way. So you've brought something extra special. I did. Uh, a barrel aged beer. Oh, nice. Okay, I'm gonna put this under Edwina so we can hear. Let's oh, see if we get a pop off do we of this. Need a, do we need a glass ready for this? We'll find out. Nicely done. Oh, nice. Don't need a glass on it, but I have one, so here we go. So this was this brewery was founded by Josh Freem. Uh, oh. That just sounds like refreshment. Okay. Uh, and Josh, uh, it was a uh, an industry in the... Uh, uh, I'm sorry, a veteran in the industry. He started out in... Utah at the Utah Brewers Collective, which I think is Squatters Wasatch Company, mm-hmm. um, where uh, and I think this changed now, but um, at the time you had to brew everything at four percent or lower, and he said it was incredibly right. good for as a brewer, right. uh, yeah, for his discipline to learn how to brew in the, with this weird constraint. So for, actually, that's different. That, that that's a good point because everything had to be four percent or lower. Everything like you couldn't sell beer in the state. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, back when he, I think now they have some provision, like in liquor stores, you can make it stronger or something like that. But Yeah, um, but it's different than places like Colorado where you can brew beer any way you want, but if you're going to sell it in a supermarket, you had to have it. They've changed it now, finally, but yeah. you had to have it 3.2% or less. And so they would just brew regular beer and then put water in it. And, yeah, no, yeah. this this in this case, um, there yeah. was a, a dominant religion that was not kind to the uh, local brewing industry. Yeah, but it does make you hone your craft as a brewer, I guess. Yes. And then from there, he went on to Chuckanut, which is a famous lager brewery. And he, mm. he kind of pursued this. I think you'll sent, get a sense of uh, his methodical approach to everything mm-hmm. in this in this career path. He wanted to learn how to brew um, uh, lagers. Uh, and from there, he went to Full Sail in, in Hood River, where Freem is, mm-hmm. uh, because he wanted to learn production brewing at a large scale. Yeah. And then he opened Freem there in Hood River. It's on the river uh, and they actually have outdoor seating. So on a nice summer day, you can sit out and look at the river. It's very nice. Um, so that's that's Josh Freem's background. Um, the brewery has a flagship of an IPA and a Pilsner, which mm-hmm. you can now find in cans. They recent, recently started canning Oh, them. did they? Oh, you didn't know about that. No, I haven't seen them in cans yet. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Actually, I take that back. I think I did see them in cans. Yeah, they're cool cans. They have, they have this Two bear... Pans as their mascot logo. Mm-hmm. Not like the ham spear bear. He's like a real bear. Uh, <laughs> and Ham's he's, the beer refreshing. Ham's the, the bear refreshing. Okay. Ham. <laughs> um, and, uh, but they also, uh, Josh, because of his, his, his background, is very much into lagers. They always have lagers on. Um, he's into traditional beers. Not so much English beers, but he, mm-hmm. he likes, he loves tradition beers. And then, um, many IPAs, those have grown over time as the popularity has grown. But the maybe the most interesting thing, and I think the thing that they 
uh, probably get uh, as much attention for as anything is their wild uh, and barrel aged stuff. Right. And we, that's one we have one of those right here. So let's drink that. This is yeah. their tangerine. So a couple things to say just while we're setting this tangerine up. Tangerine golden ale. Oh, nice. Yeah. So there's two things I'm gonna say. One is Hood Rivers in the Columbia River Gorge is the base of Mount Hood, the northern uh, the northern side of Mount Hood on the Columbia River. Uh, it's a great place, about an hour and a half. Where the Hood River enters the Columbia. The Hood River enters the Columbia, yes, right. Uh, about an hour and a half to the east of Portland. Uh, but it's also a super big uh, fruit-growing yeah. region. Yeah. And that matters a lot in it beer does. because there's a lot of local yeasts flying around and there's a lot of wonderful fruit. Yeah. And they take advantage of that. Uh, I think I think Josh told me that they're going to release 50 beers in the bottle this mm-hmm. year. We're in a package, uh, which is a lot. Um, many breweries make a lot of beers, but most of those are on draft. And, and I right. think they, they're going to make over 100 beers. But um, This has an amazing aroma. It has an amazing aroma. And oh, my gosh. Many of these beer, barrel-aged beers that they do are uh, fruited, as you point out, and they take advantage of the... It's known. It's known here as the Fruit Loop uh, in Hood River. Right. So that is phenomenal. Yeah. This is their best. And not just because they're a sponsor. This is the problem. <laughs> it's <laughs> we, true. If we talk too glowingly about it, that's right. Uh, anyone would we'll agree. Lose, we'll, we'll lose our credibility. But uh, I I selected this because well before they were there, our sponsor, uh, mm-hmm. I had one of these at the brewery and I thought it was really great. So what, I, what's exceptional is the way that it expresses the fruit on the nose and on the palate. Uh-huh. And yet it finishes dry. It's not cloying. It's just a very clean fruit taste on top of a very nice. Go ahead. I was going to say, there's a. I'll, I'll test you. There's a there's mm-hmm. a note that is evident if you know it's in there. Or now that I've read this, I, I recognize it uh, as a flavor component. But Uh-oh. um, uh, but I didn't pick it up. So, can you pick it up? Mm. No. They were aged in uh, Sauvignon Blanc bottles <laughs> oh, or uh, barrels. Oh, I should have I should have seen that one coming. Yeah, it, it's because uh, yeah, a, wine. A, yeah, exactly. A sort of a white wine. Exactly. There's a little vinousness mm. there. That's uh, yep. yep. A, Precisely as you said. I didn't pick it up again. That's a really nice contrast with apricot, though. Mm. Nectarine, but yes. No, oh, sorry, nectarine. <laughs> I think I said apricot mm. twice. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so this is uh, they they recently installed a cool ship so they're doing wild beer but they're doing these wonderful they have just uh, they, they've grown and grown and grown they're, they've added a new production facility down the river toward Portland uh, mm-hmm. in Cascade Locks but is it just a production facility? it's just a production facility and there's they're not you can't even do it's not built yet but they're they're planning to have no no oh, public interface that's there. bad because Cascade Locks is pretty spectacular too it is spectacular but it's, I think it's partly because so much of their current facility is taken over by fooders and barrels now mm. that you know, they need constantly. <laughs> they, gotta have a, they gotta brewery somewhere. Yeah. So brew actual beer somewhere. They'll they'll keep their current brewery, so when you go into the pub there, you can see the brewery, and I think they're yeah. adding a much bigger brewery. So. so I've never visited them. <gasps> what? This is the same reaction I get when I say I haven't been to XYZ. Especially when you talk about Prague. Don't bring up Prague. But Hood River. I mean, a lot of people go to Hood River. This is not an obscure place. Uh, I've been to Hood River. <laughs> i often been through Hood River. I actually don't spend that much time in Hood River, I have to say. It's an hour away, man. I know. It's true. I've been to Double Mountain. I'll tell you seven. what. Your wife doesn't like uh, going to breweries. This is one issue, yes. So, but she loves to hike. 
So here, here, here's a here's a perfect afternoon for you. You go down the gorge, you hike in the gorge, yeah. and then you have a lunch uh, repast at Freem, which has a really nice menu and these exquisite vinous beers. And she's going to think it's very cool, and you're going to think it's very cool, and everybody's going to think it's very cool. So right. there's your afternoon. All right, thank you for saving my marriage. It's yeah. a date. <laughs> <laughs> Just trying to figure out ways so that Christina has a good time going to breweries. All right, and, I'm gonna I'm gonna get this right now. It's nectarine, uh, which is obvious when you taste it, but my mind was kept saying I forgot. Yep. Uh, uh, barrel aged. I don't know. I'm gonna have some more. Mm. Uh, that's exceptional. It's really nice. So thank you so much, Freem, for joining us. And uh, you will be hearing about Freem a little bit more as we go along, uh, as they remain our proud sponsor for the next several weeks. Yeah, and you know I love me a good Pilsner, and it's one of my go-to. It is. There's three go-to Pilsners. Yeah. I'll let you guess the other two, but Freem is one of them. It's one of their flagships, which goes to show that you can have, uh, I think they made over 20,000 barrels last year. And, really? You know, I think most people probably think of them for either their wild beers or their IPAs. But their Pilsner is uh, sells great, and that's just how cool Portland, Oregon is. You know, <laughs> you can have you can be famous for something and still have a flagship Pilsner. So there you go. All right, cheers, Freem. Thank you for uh, sponsoring us, and uh, look look for Freem beer in your local beer store. Indeed. All right, more news now. Now yes. we're gonna get to the big news. The big news. The big news. We had small news. Now we're in big news. Indeed. All right. All right so ABI and Heiser Busch, uh, International. Uh, uh, Anheuser Busch InBev, AB InBev, <laughs> ABI. I know. Okay, uh, made a surprise announcement with the purchase of Cleveland's Platform Beer Company. The brewery was founded in, in 201. Oh my God. This is some of my finest work. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to guess it's 2001, but it could be 2010, it could be 2011, it could actually be 2000, any kind of team. I think it's 2014, if memory <laughs> oh <my> serves. <laughs> All right, yeah, so not long ago, the brewer is uh, founded and experienced 300% growth uh, in 2017. Wow, shooting from 6,500 to 20,000 barrels. Yeah. Holy smokes. Yeah. That's a a lot of growth. Yep. Uh, this purchase seemed to be aimed at finding a brewery that could appeal to younger brewers. Platform is known for making beer slushies, oh, beer cocktails, seltzers, and hazies. ABI hasn't purchased a brewery since Wicked Weed in 2017. Yeah. Uh, I also have some probably something to do with the fact that there's 300% growth. Well, certainly, yeah. And I think it's kind of like the uh, Ballast Point thing. Where they're growing like crazy, and so it's like, oh, let's jump on that. Yeah, it's sort of like that. Although Ballast Point was well over a hundred thousand barrels, I think. I think you know these breweries that are showing a lot of promise when they're small. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is what happened with uh, Ten Barrels. What happened with Golden Road? Yeah, there are these little. They're still little enough, so you don't have a lot of complexity over a big distribution footprint that may be really confused. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they look like they're going to have a lot of success. They're still small enough so that it, it's an easy acquisition. Mm-hmm. I think these are more often. Uh, better targets for bigger breweries because of that then they can the the you know at this point ABI can just re you know just take it over and do whatever they want yeah it it it, it always interests me what the I, I'd love to know what the boardroom discussions are when they think about these acquisitions are they thinking about this is a brand that we can grow or this is just great growth let's let's hitch our wagon to it it's I, I don't really know what the calculus is yeah I mean it's interesting with uh uh, Anheuser-Busch, you can see a few contours there, right? So they bought um, 
uh, Wicked Weed, which was sour ales. So mm-hmm. they wanted a, a beer, a brewery that had those kinds of uh, beers. Uh, they bought that. Um, God, I can't remember the name of it. Uh, it is all. It's like in Virginia. It's a lager brewery. Yes. So uh, what you're talking about? Yeah. <laughs> so you know, you can see that they're kind of. Uh, so step back a bit. What's Anheuser-Busch's business model? Well, for one thing, they have national distribution to places like uh, chain restaurants and stadiums and, uh, you know, big, big chains or big, uh, uh, big accounts Mm -hmm. where little breweries can't afford to compete. Right. And the big problem for a long time was that Anheuser-Busch was selling a beer that wasn't meeting everyone's needs. So they started acquiring these little breweries. And now you go into places and if you... Uh, sharp sharp watchers notice they'll walk in and they'll see all these breweries but they're actually not a bunch of breweries they're all members of uh, ABI's craft portfolio right so they're trying to create this this kind of uh, but what you suggest is that they're looking for a variety of beer styles that they can take national which is a little different than the idea that I'm going to just buy up a bunch of regional breweries keep them regional and be relevant in all of these sort of different regional markets I don't know that those things are in conflict right mm. you can still uh, yeah. you can still like the 10 barrel they seem to really be going for is swill that uh, uh, kind of Berliner Weisse mm-hmm. and I think that's the beer that if you ordered a if you you know if you, you went to one of these uh, like you went to a Chili's in uh, Fort Lauderdale <laughs> if you saw a 10 barrel <laughs> right God forbid <laughs> if you saw a 10 barrel beer there you know they were all Anheuser-Busch beers uh, you would you would almost certainly see swill on the other hand, when you come to the Northwest, uh, Ten Barrel now has a brewery in Bend and in Portland and in Boise, and they're Spokane or I don't know. They're mm. they're kind of you yeah. know doing they're regionalizing, but they're also uh, uh, available when AB wants to slug plug them into other things. Right. It right. seems like it seems like just my casual observation that seems to be the approach. Yeah, I can, I can never decide whether I think that they're being like super clever and strategic about this. Or they're just like grasping it, <laughs> grasping at whatever is like right. the newest, latest growing. Yeah, I, uh, I think we'll find out. There's probably a little bit of both. I mean, they've done a pretty good job of selecting breweries. They haven't really had a ballast point debacle, right? They've they've selected yeah. breweries yeah. that, you know, Blue Point, the first one that they did after uh, uh, Goose Island, was not really a giant. It doesn't seem like it's been a giant growth engine, mm-hmm. but you know, it, it's not. It hasn't been a catastrophic failure either. Right. So right. it seems like that that's sort of their their baseline is we we spend some money, worst case is it doesn't doesn't do anything for us. Best case is it goes ballistic. Yeah, but okay, here's a here's one uh hypothesis I have or one observation I have, I suppose, which is uh when they acquired Goose Island, I feel like they thought that this was gonna be something they could take and make a big national brand out of. Definitely, yeah, and that's it, definitely the case. And it didn't work. Yeah, I mean, it it kind of worked. It it you know they they really Goose Island IPA is a beer that they're they're really promoting as a as a national IPA. They wanted that to be the national IPA, right? Um, and that's a that's a tough pull um, mm-hmm. because most people want local IPA. So if you go, you know, if you're in Portland, Oregon, you go down to the bar. Right. You don't want a Goose Island IPA. You want a Breakside. Right. You don't. You can't find Goose Island here on the tap. Right. And that's they confront that problem everywhere they go, right. but um, uh, and I think that's just a challenge with these 
with these national trying to nationalize a brand is very challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the big advantage is that Anheuser Busch has distributors in fifty states, yep. and they have accounts that other breweries can't touch. You know, a Breakside is well, Breakside might be big enough to afford to get into the the Moda Center here in Portland now, but but it's going to be challenging. Whereas Anheuser Busch can afford to put beer into the Moda Center. Yeah, and the other thing that Breakside has, and this is, I mean, Breakside, Anheuser Busch has, uh, and this is something that. I find curious is they've got what six mega breweries across the U.S. Uh, they have twenty national, or they have twenty plants in North America. Oh tw- my tw- gosh. Twelve are in uh, uh, America. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So twelve. Yeah. But yeah, if they decided they wanted to make a national beer out of whatever, they could brew it at scale. Absolutely. All the- over the U.S. and it would be. And they could get it to market. I and mean, that's exactly what they did with Goose Island IPA. They reformulated it so it would be, so they had the capacity to brew it on bud plants mm-hmm. and they started brewing it about bud plants and they were hoping that it would, you know, become a, yeah the next Michelob Ultra or something. So what's interesting really to me that. about Goose Island is you go anywhere in sort of the greater Midwest, yeah. Midwest broadly defined, and you'll find Goose Island everywhere on tap. Like they really did, they were very successful within that yeah, sort of absolutely. broad region, but it's not coastal. No, it's not really coastal. I mean, you find it in grocery stores, and you find it in these special, like a Chili's or sure. a, yeah. So, so I think that maybe taught them a lesson yeah. about how much, how big you can grow these things. And so, I, I think that's right. Although they do do things like um, uh, Elysian's Space Dust is an IPA that just has had explosive growth. And the cool thing mm-hmm. if from Anheuser Busch's perspective is, they <laughs> scatter these seeds, and if something starts to sprout, they're it's ready to they're ready to go. They're you know just yes. what you said. They yeah. can scale up and go if they need to. Uh, yeah, I think there's two sides to that coin. One is they're ready to go if something sprouts, and they're also but they're also sort of myopic and and they don't they won't spend a long time trying to cultivate. I think that's right, and it and it's not clear. So just throw but, throw a lot of stuff at the wall and see what sticks. Yeah, and and the so far all the brands that I've seen. Anheuser Busch uh, push from these breweries are beers that already existed. There's not it doesn't look to me like these breweries have done a lot of great work of introducing new beers that are attaching that na- national attention. And yeah. given the churn in the marketplace, if they can't do that, that's going to be a problem down mm-hmm. the road. Interesting. So, okay, next one. All right. So ABI. Speaking of, yes, this is the contrasting case, and I think we can talk a little bit about. Why it's why why one thing happened and not the other? ABI did not buy Craft Brew Alliance, uh, which had long been anticipated. According to arrangement between the two breweries, ABI had to make a qualifying offer of twenty four dollars and fifty cents per share by last Friday. Actually, uh, as we record, uh, f- not sure when that was, but like two Fridays ago. <laughs> uh, when and and at that time, CBA stock was trading below twelve dollars a share, or they could pay CBA uh, twenty million dollars. Uh, at the in, instead of buying the brewery, according to calculations at the time, that would have amounted to a payout of around four hundred seventy-five million dollars uh, buying at twenty-four fifty a share. So uh, they paid the twenty million dollars, and they'll continue to own roughly thirty percent of Craft Brew Alliance, and nothing nothing changed. Craft Brew Alliance is Woodmer, Red Hook. Kona, Kona, the big one. Yeah, mainly Kona. Yeah, Kona's the one that's actually growing. <laughs> yeah. The rest are shrinking, right? And uh, a, lo- a lot of people, me included, um, suspected that they would buy it for all the reasons we just talked about, because Kona is this kind of unicorn brand that's super popular. It's mm-hmm. it's it's 
co-branded as beer and Hawaii. Yep. Hawaii's evergreen. And the beers that uh, Kona makes, um, Big Wave IPA, or Big Wave uh, Golden Ale. Uh, Longboard Lager. Longboard Lager. These are these are beers that can be made on... Uh, Wailua Wheat. On, yeah, on big bud plants. So mm. it seemed to me like, you know, this was going to be something Budweiser would want. But the interesting thing is... Uh, as a consequence of purchasing Miller Coors, mm-hmm. or I guess SAB Miller, uh, they're now $108 million, billion, billion dollars in the hole. <laughs> and shareholders are starting to say, you gotta, you gotta start generating profits, not go further in the hole. And I think that was a big reason that uh-huh. this was, it was bad timing all the way around. Uh, CBA stock was collapsing. Um, yeah, CBA's in a bit of a bind now. I guess, I still think it's a great, I, I mean, I do think Kona is a very strong brand. Yeah. Uh, so I, I don't know. I look at Kona compared to some other breweries the same size, and the, the Kona brand is, is growing notably every year. Uh, the other br- brands are not growing so well, but as a company, if you're staking your <laughs> staking your future on Kona, it seems like there's a lot of worse bets, bets in beer. Yeah, it's true. I mean, that's, that is, as you say, it's a bit of a unicorn that you can kind of push the Hawaii angle, which is a... Kind of a very particular and special state in the United States, and and uh, uh, use that as something unique that doesn't, uh, you know, uh, it resonates along with the local craft beer scene, right? Yeah, it doesn't sort of in, intrude or impede. Yeah, it's one of those things like Guinness, where it's local. It's not your local, but it's distinctively local in a very romantic and appealing right. way. And yeah, so you exactly. can be another place and still say, "Oh!" And you see the the big wave. You see the guy on a on a surfboard, and you think, oh, "I want to be in Hawaii." And you drink the beer. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah. So I think it. I think these two these two things are great contrasts. Platform was small, had the it was, it was small, cheap, and built to grow. Right. Uh, and CBA was expensive, big, and more risky, and so they took the easier bet. Yeah, interesting, interesting thing. Just a window into that company's thinking. Yeah, well, I mean, four hundred seventy-five million is not not just a even for a even for Anheuser even for Anheuser Busch. That's a that's a big that's a big chunk of change. It is. All right. So finally, uh, just before CBA, the CBA news broke. A property firm in Hong Kong, CK Asset Holdings, announced the purchase of Green King, the UK's largest maker of traditional cask ales, uh, as I call them, one of their heritage be- heritage brewers. Yep. Uh, the cash bid, which Green King directors have advised shareholders to accept, values the company at 2.7 billion pounds, or 4.6 billion, including the debt that CKA will be taking on. Uh, Green King has 2,700 pubs and Inns uh, in the UK and two breweries, uh, the Green King Brewery in Bury St Edmunds that we visited, and Belhaven in Dunbar, Scotland that we also visited. <laughs> we did. We visited them both. So we're actually very familiar with Green King. We are. Uh, and Belhaven, of course. Uh, and what's unique? What I think the most important thing to understand about the UK beer market, particularly if you're talking about heritage brewers, is that a huge part of the business of heritage brewers is their pub networks. Yeah. And this is why these two news stories, the CBA, the potential CBA purchase and the Green King purchase really are apples and oranges. They're so different. Yeah. Yeah. Completely different. And what you have to understand is that uh, these heritage breweries and uh, brewers, breweries, brewers in in the UK are 
uh, a huge part of their balance sheet is property management. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? So they they own a ton of properties. Uh, they're all Tide pubs that and, sell their beer. And this Hong Kong company is a property company. They're and, not brewers. Exactly. Which makes <laughs> yeah. Which makes me think about them thinking about all of the twenty seven hundred properties they have in the UK, uh, which is a market that have fairly high property values in general. Yeah, and I read somewhere on the Guardian by someone, an economist or somebody, who said that. Uh, as pubs and inns, uh, those properties are probably undervalued mm-hmm. relative to their value as property generally. So, exactly. Um, this, if you love those pubs, this may not be a good sign. And if you know about what's happening to the pubs in UK in general, which is that they're shrinking rapidly, lots and lots of pubs are closing, your corner pub is gone. My, uh, the corner pub that uh, was the pub of my, um, this is complicated, but essentially my step-grandparents, uh, in in uh, uh, St. John's Wood in London closed years ago and became uh, just an apartment uh-huh. complex. Yeah. Right? In London, it's, I mean, I, how can a, I can't even yeah. imagine how... So as economists, we call this exist. opportunity cost, right? So the yeah. opportunity cost of running a pub is extremely high because the property that the pubs uh, occupy uh, uh, can be developed as apartments or other high-income opportunities. Yeah. One little quirk that I found so fascinating, it's a little irony about this whole deal, is uh, so there's the second Asian company that has purchased a, a big a UK brewing and pub company. So yep. the first one was Asahi buying Fuller's. Right. And uh, I, one of the reasons that these foreign companies are finding uh, these these uh, pub, pub and brewery companies so seductive is that the... Uh, the pound has really dropped relative to other currencies. Yes. And so, thanks Brexit. So so the so the Brexit the Brexit Brexit movement which is sort of a, you know, tinged with nativism. Well, it was it was oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yes, but it was tinged with nativism and yet it you know, because it was a catastrophe, it has now made it Yeah, UK assets are cheap. <laughs> exactly. So that was an unintended consequence. Oh, don't get me started. Uh <laughs> Yeah. So anyway. So one silver lining, perhaps, and I don't know how serious to take this. You might have a better take on is that uh, there is this nostalgia. So what you can sell, the what UK can sell across the world, of course, is this mm-hmm. sort of n- nostalgia for this. You know, they still have a royalty. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of sort of ancient history in the UK that you can sell. And so apparently uh, this sells in Asia. I don't want to make sort of broad uh uh, paint in two broad strokes, but Green, well, and Green and King is a brand that has somehow caught hold a little bit. And Hong Kong is a former colony, so there's yeah. that connection as well. Yeah, and so there is hope, perhaps, that this is something that they think they can grow as a brand in Asia yeah. and could somehow. But it's weird to think of like this old Victorian gravity brewery in Bury St. Edmunds somehow like satisfying the demand of the market in China. So you'd have to sort of imagine a modern brewery kind of chunking checking out Green King branded beers and stuff. Who knows? But at, Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised to see several hundred of these breweries go away immediately, or these uh, pubs go away immediately, yes. um, yeah. which would maybe wipe out that debt. And then, uh, But you have to understand that these are the main distribution channels of the beer that they make. It's true. Because there's not... I mean, uh, when we visited Burris and Edmonds, one of the fascinating things was this amazing like uh, pipe superhighway yeah. that carried beer from the brewery 
down into this valley where they had this new modern bottling plant. Yeah, uh, that it was, was several des- blocks away. It was designed to sustain to, <laughs> to withstand the apparently fairly common floods that happened down there, uh, which I thought was curious. Yeah, uh, but uh, really in the UK, you know, the packaged market is fairly small, and it's really the 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 draft market that that matters a lot, and so that's why these pub networks are huge for these breweries, and as the pub trade goes down these breweries are suffering yeah so i don't know uh it's sad though uh, it, if it, you if you ever visit one of these old heritage breweries you'll get you'll you'll become enthralled like we have yeah and i mean nobody uh, got a collective sigh by by uh brits uh that i am in connect, in contact with on twitter and, and other places and it's and it's because that this this company is so big and it is a victorian brewery the beer is often not in fine form when it reaches the hinterland of this empire, this pub empire. And so it's kind of known, it's sort of the McMinimans of, uh, of the UK. It's sort of known as being mediocre beer, which is sad because when we visit the brewery, when those beers are cracking good right off the, you know, right off the system, they're amazing. Yeah, but, well, it's, uh, funny, it's funny the parochialism, right? Because uh, they're kind of the heritage brewer that became kind of the big bad guy. Right. Uh, you know, they bought Bellhaven and they're sort of pushing their beers. And, and uh, Yeah, several others like Moreland and a couple other breweries. Yeah, and they all they, all the packaging happened there, by the way, at Burien St. Edmunds. They'd all truck it down to this one packaging plant. And I think they closed this other brewery. So I think the, the, the beers are being made there now, too. And the beers are being made there, too. So it, it was sort of, it was odd to us as Americans thinking we had a very simple dichotomy. You had the old uh, mass market lager. Right. You know, mega lager brewers. And then you had all these like, you know, rebel alliance of craft brewers that are fighting against the big, you know, Death Star of Anheuser-Busch. But England and UK uh, more broadly uh, is different in the sense that they've got uh, uh, a big penetration of these mass market lager brewers, including uh, all the big American ones. Uh, But then you had these heritage brewers and then you had this new sort of American-inspired craft brewers. Yeah. Uh, and so we always thought that it was natural that the heritage brewers and the craft brewers would be in alignment and they would be together. But no, it was no. this weird sort of three <laughs> tripartite battle that was going on. And Green King was a little bit of the bad guy. Yeah, it uh, was it was the Budweiser of uh, the UK in a weird way. Yeah, in a strange way. So, uh, so this one's weird. It's hard to unpack and hard to sort of make sense of. But um, I don't think exactly that there'll be too much, too many tears shed. No, there haven't the been. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, uh, those are the sales. Uh, those are the the stories of the sales of the week. Yeah. All right. So let's turn now to your adventures. Yeah. Upcoming adventures in in uh, in Europe. I'll trot through this pretty fast because we're getting a little low on time. We have this full mailbag, but um, oh right, yeah. I do want to mention since I'll be gone and it's a little unclear what will happen to the podcast. We ho- we have some ideas, we have some hopes, but it'll be intercontinental podcasting, and we'll see what happens. Um, I'll be going to, I'll be on one month, one full month, mm-hmm. uh, and I will be traveling to the UK and Belgium. Those two countries I'll spend a fair amount of time in, uh, more than half of the whole trip. Yep. Uh, seeing some breweries in both places, uh, and seeing the, the scene there, making new note notes on the new craft breweries that have opened in both countries since I was last there, mm-hmm. and, which are changing brewing industry. Um, and then I'm going to see what's happening in some of the other less beery parts of the world. So I'm going to head to, well, I shouldn't say less beery, but different parts. So I'm going to Vienna, mm-hmm. uh, and I want to go to Anton Dreher's old brewery and see the archives and uh, I, get a sense of what the Austrians are doing. I've heard they've made some lager in Vienna. 
They make some lager in Vienna. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, and then I'm going to Krakow, Poland. Nice. Yes, that'll be cool. Uh, no real reason to go there. Uh, I'm not seeing a brewery or anything, but I've always wanted to go to Krakow. That no real reason. It's po- Krakow. Come on, man. Oh, I, and Krakow is the, the center of culture in Poland, and um, yeah. it's they're the third largest uh, consumer of, of beer in Europe, so I'm, I'm quite interested in that. And then maybe the most interesting and exotic place, Vilnius, Lithuania, nice. where I will be seeing uh, I, a meeting with a local who will give me some notes on uh, Lithuanian farmhouse ale, mm-hmm. find some farmhouse ale, and then I'll get to see some of the local stuff there. Mm-hmm. That's very exciting. I'm very excited about that. And then uh, my last stop will be Berlin, uh, the one place, one major brewing region in Germany I've never been to. Uh, and Alan Taylor's hooking me up with a buddy of his. I'm going to see his brewery and maybe see another brewery from another uh, a brewer that I know there and then home. So that'll be fun. And we'll try to figure out some way to yeah, patch so, me in. So I, ideally what we're going to be doing is dispatches from Jeff's trip. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll be here in the studio. So this is the concept. <laughs> we'll see if we can pull this <laughs> off. I'll be here in the studio. Jeff will send in his dispatches, and we'll create podcast content from your trips, which actually should be pretty interesting and, yeah, and, and unique if we can do that. I'll interview brewers and stuff as I do this. So. Yeah, and this yeah. is all in service of the next edition of the Beer Bible. Right. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. Uh, so uh, look for these podcasts coming up. Indeed. Uh, okay. All right. Uh, so we've tasted, <laughs> we've tasted the, the Freem Nectar and Ale. In fact, we're still uh, drinking it. Yes. Uh, and now we got to get to the mailbag. So I'll read the first one and we can take a whack at that. Yeah, please. Greg Moomy, not Mooney, Moomy. Moomy. Uh, okay. Yes. Uh, writes, I'm a relatively new listener from Iowa City, Iowa, and I'm really enjoying the show. I was just curious if you guys, curious if you guys had mentioned anything about or had any thoughts about John Meyer's retirement from Rogue. Also, is there a Rogue beer that you enjoy? Admittedly, I'm a bit of a haze boy. Uh, LOL. So I've been hitting the uh, Bat Squatch Hazy IPA pretty hard. Is that, a, I don't even know, is that a Rogue Bat Squatch? So this is so funny. As you read that, I was thinking, it's interesting. Rogue is such an interesting company to me. I know. Uh, they're kind of a little bit of an afterthought in Oregon. A little bit, yeah. Such a... Which is odd to say because they're one of the early pioneers and for a long time they were, you know, the big player. But It, it is. But Rogue Bat Squad. Yeah, but they're really... Uh, they get their beer out everywhere. They do indeed. In fact, as Iowa I was City. a... Poor, yeah, well, <laughs> Iowa City, there you go. Yeah. And as I was a, a poor... Uh, uh, displaced Oregonian in Ithaca, New York. I could always count on finding Rogue yep. beer. Uh, they, that's a big part of their business models, getting their beer out all over the place. Um, so uh, it's interesting. So John Meyer is obviously a legend. Yeah, and we did we did mention this on the pod. Yeah, uh, and uh, definitely, yeah, a legend is at least. I mean, he's maybe yeah, he's one of the most important brewers in American brewing. Yeah, sure. Uh, absolutely. And uh, uh, Jack Joyce, the founder of Rogue Brewing, the, the owner and founder of Rogue Brewing, told me the story about how uh, he met and hired John uh, Meyer in an airport in Anchorage, Alaska. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think you told that story when we, we mentioned this. You want to tell that again? Uh, well, that's basically the story. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, so, and, and John was one of those classic homebrewers gone pro, so... He was beloved by homebrewers and nurtured yeah. homebrewers the whole time he was there. He had a 
soft spot in his heart for homebrewers and interface with them and gave them uh, yeast and stuff. And I try to be a little politic about this, but he he's been a lifer at Rogue during a time of uh, uh, I don't know fair amount of turnover at Rogue. Rogue wasn't always known as the best place to work, right? Uh, but John uh, was uh, you. I've never heard a bad word spoken about John. Himself. I never have either. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I've heard a lot of words spoken about what an unusual guy he was. He was very quiet. He was very reserved. Yeah. Yeah. One of the few brewers in, Port- in Oregon I've never met. Yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, he didn't have to. One of the things about Rogues, he didn't have to go out and be the face of the company. Right. Yeah. And I, it seems like he was a, a homebody and didn't really leave uh, Newport very much, as far as I can tell. Yeah. It's yeah. Like, not like you would see him at fests or anything. Yeah. But, but leaves a legacy that's... Um, uh, second to very few yeah, uh, in the Oregon beer scene. I don't drink a ton of Rogue. I still, when I go to the pubs, I still order a Shakespeare style, which is one of my favorites. You know, that's a funny, we've talked about this before. Rogue sort of is comfortable with a price point that's a little high and yeah. not super competitive in this really competitive Oregon. So I think, you know, in a sense, you can, you can uh, applaud them for their business acumen, which is like, look, we won't worry too much about Oregon. Right will just be known as this premium beer elsewhere and charge this high price point. Uh, I actually just rode by the Rogue Brewery, in, uh, the Rogue uh, Pub in Portland, uh, which is right across the street from Ten Barrel, speaking of ABI. Right. Uh, the Ten Barrel Brewery is like new and fancy. and uh, sorry, ten, ten Barrel Pub is new and fancy and they've got a rooftop and it's sort of like where all the hit millennials are. But, you know, there was, the Rogue Pub was full and they had a bunch of, benches outside and they all they seem pretty uh, pretty full as well so yeah, good uh, for you, Rogue. you know so rogue does have this reputation that travels they also and this is one thing that we, we you know we recently did this pod on japan rogue went to japan early and i forgot this was a question that I, re- I regret not asking the our japanese experts but right yeah yeah, yeah. but rogue was there early and has penetrated the japan, 90s japan, yeah like early 90s yeah japan market as well and J- japanese tourism is a big deal in in portland particularly yeah. oregon in general Portland particularly and I think it it, uh, it pays off I think that uh, you're really right that they really anticipated that yeah so uh, yeah I guess that's all I have to say about <laughs> I have not had the bat squatch hazy IPA I have not but, but you have inspired me so if I find if I, if yeah, I see it in the store I'm gonna try it let's track that down yeah all right uh, next uh, mailbag entry is by Aaron Goldfarb uh, by the way Greg thanks for listening uh, it's nice to know that uh, we have listeners outside Portland <laughs> yeah really very yeah. cool. Uh, Go we, Hawkeyes. Yeah. Uh, or actually, Iowa City is not Hawkeyes. I don't. Uh, Iowa City is. Yeah. Ames is, that... Ames is Iowa State. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, Go I Hawkeyes. <laughs> All right. Uh, Adam Goldfarb says, "I'm not sure if you recall Firestone Walker International Beer Fest." Thank you very much for that. <laughs> I was about to do the acronym F W I B F, whatever the hell that is. Uh, but we started chatting, joking. Oh, you should be reading this. Uh, I'm reading it to you. Uh, we started chatting, joking around about uh, the Rogue Voodoo Donut beers. Uh, okay. Yes. Speaking of rogue, yes. Uh, you said something like, "I've never met a single person who likes them." So let me give you a little context. Rogue uh, Voodoo Donuts is a, a very uh, well-known. I mean, for tourists, it's like a now a go-to. Yeah. We, we just had we just weird. had friends from Germany, and uh, their twenty-year-old son said, "Oh, I want to go to Voodoo Donuts." Okay. Uh, Voodoo Donuts. It's um, the fifth best donut maker in Portland. It is, but they have lots of like. Uh, um, uh, I don't know. I just want to say cool or clever 
uh, novelty donuts. Let me put they it that have, way. Yes. They have lots of novelty donuts. Yeah. So novelty is a big part of what they're about. The actual quality of the donut itself, not so much. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, they have a collaboration with Rogue, and Rogue brews this beer and puts it in these bright pink bottles that matches the bright pink boxes that Voodoo puts their donuts right. in. And they make them with donuts. Oh, they do make it with them. Okay, yeah. I didn't even know that part. Yeah, they're gross. I've never had it. It's gross. It oh. is flat out disgusting. Well, it is one of the worst beers I ever had. Well, there you, there you go. Uh, okay, I got to finish this now. Yeah. And I had to agree with you about the no one likes them. Still, ever since I've been thinking that even though the beers were truly bad, maybe they were ahead of their time and kind of helped usher in our current pastry stout era. Uh-huh, I see where he's going with this. Yeah, totally. I'm wondering if you'd be up for offering some insight on from ground zero. I'm really curious what the reaction to the beers was like in Oregon during the last decade. Were they seen as a joke? Do you have any inkling who was actually buying them? Were they secretly funding the entire Rogue Empire? Hey, that's a good question. I don't even know how well they sell, but you do actually see them around town. Yeah, I act- you can't miss them because they're in bright pink bottles, right? But not in like like your typical grocery store beer market, but more like downtown. I'll see them in stores. I think I think again, tourist. Yeah, novelty. Novelty. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's possible that Rogues this beer inspired people outside of Portland, yeah. uh, outside of Oregon. Yeah. Um, the pastry stout thing was, you know late coming to Oregon and doesn't is not really that big a deal here. Uh, a lot of imperial stouts, a lot of imperial barrel-aged stouts. Um, I think, you know, uh, Full Sail did their first barrel-aged imperial stout in the early to mid-90s. So we've, we've had that tradition for a long time, but the yeah. pastry stout is not a not a big thing here. No. Um, we had Van Havig on last week, and we were talking about how we don't, our palate in the Northwest is not really towards sweet beers. Right, yeah. Um, but it wouldn't surprise me at all if people in other places uh, received this rogue beer and it gave them ideas. And so it, it, it may weirdly have sparked the pastry beer thing elsewhere. Yeah. Because <laughs> this beer is actually pretty old now. It's, you know, six or eight years old. Yeah. But just like just like Voodoo is not a great donut, but has a lot of novelty and, and put in a bright package. So when you, by the way, this is one of the interesting things now. You can go to the Portland airport. And you just sit there and you watch all the people coming through the airport with these bright pink boxes because it's like yeah. the last stop you make so you can bring Voodoo Donuts back home to the people back home. Right. I and think, then those people back home will say, huh, yeah, nice. But very... it's got Fruit Loops on it. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I think that the the Rogue Voodoo beer is very similar. It's in a really bright pink package. Right. It's something you can bring home. It's got a lot of novelty value. I'm not sure that it has a ton of value as a beer full stop. Yeah. It has no value. It's terrible. <laughs> I've never had it, so I can't say. <laughs> All, right. All right. Let's go to the last one. Yep. Uh, Rob Leitner uh, contacted me and um, reminded me uh, that he'd contacted before. So he writes, uh, hey, Jeff, been 3.5 years since the thread below, and he included that. So I thought I'd check in as I continue to be a regular listener to you and Patrick's podcast was listening the other day and heard the Beer Sherpa segment and thought, I'd love to send you guys some of our beer. Uh, We've been open since December 2016 and things are going really well, not without challenges and stress, of course, but moving in the right direction and making the beer we want to make. And I want to say, yes, Rob, you and any brewer may definitely send us beer. Uh, Please. We will uh, uh, be happy to try beer uh, that we receive and um, no 
no guarantee when we'll try it or how all that works. It's going to have to fight, you know, kind of fit into our schedule. But yeah, we're, we would be happy to receive beer. So I will get back to you, Rob, and say, and give you my address. Uh, so you can, or I can give you Patrick's. I, he never gets any beer. Maybe he's feeling left out. <laughs> uh, but you're, you're generous with uh, passing beer on to me. Uh, uh, do you know anything about Rob's Brewery? Yeah, you know, that was another blunder. I Really, I'm, we're going through a major renovation, and I'm trying to plan to go to Europe. I just want to say. Wow, the know, excuses keep coming. It's just, there's, this this was especially bad. For, I just want to, yeah. Yeah, actually, we, so, so here's one of the challenges of the podcast. Well, it's one of the strengths and challenges of the podcast. So this is, we decided to call the podcast the Beervana podcast for a reason, uh, because there's no way that we can sit here in Portland, Oregon, and uh, do a podcast that, uh, doesn't reflect our local beer scene. That's uh, right. So uh, we're unapologetic about it. We we try to uh, to highlight beers from outside the region. We try to talk about uh, beers and beer styles that are uh, global. But uh, lots of our references are local because we are in a local market, and I think that craft beer is essentially local. We also have the benefit of having hop fields and barley fields and lots of things nearby as well. Go ahead. You're about to tell us about Rob. All beer is local. Rob Leitner is from the East Brother Beer Company in Richmond, California, which is in Bay Area. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. Uh, East Bay. Yeah, uh, just north of uh, Oakland. So, yeah, Rob. Uh, Absolutely. The answer is yes. Uh, anyway, so this is my long soliloquy to say that uh, sometimes it's challenging in in such a saturated local beer market. Uh, it's we don't have maybe as. Uh, uh, a good opportunity as other people do to taste beer outside our beer market. And so we rely on people like Rob sending us beer uh, and uh, letting us know what's happening elsewhere. Yeah. So send us some uh, local beer from the Bay Area. Yeah. And if you're not a brewer and just a, a beer enthusiast, tell us what's going on locally. That's tell right. Us, especially if it's something distinct from what we see here in Portland, Oregon. Uh, we'd love to hear about it. Indeed. All right. So uh, thus ends the uh, uh, the podcast. We better get, we better get moving on here. Is <laughs> run long. Uh, a few words going out. Uh, once again, we want to extend our hearty thank you to Freem Family Brewers for sponsoring this episode of the Beer Vana Podcast. Please visit them when you're in Hood River, Oregon, which you should definitely visit if you're planning a trip to Portland. Uh, and at freembeer.com. That's p f r i e m b e e r dot com. Uh, please subscribe to us on. Uh, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate us and review us. Five stars, please. <laughs> that helps listeners find the show. Uh, we'd love to hear from you, so you can send your questions or comments to jeff at beervonablog.com or visit us on social media. We have a Beervonapod Twitter now, at yes. Beervonapod. We also have, there's also a Beervonablog Facebook page. That's right. So however you like to do your social media, we're there for you. Uh, jeff blogs at the Beervana blog, and he tweets at at Beervana. And Patrick tweets at Beeronomics. All right. So uh, we have uh, uh, leftover from our pod last week. <laughs> Some Kolstastic. Some Kolstastic. By the way, if we had gotten to a beer Sherpa, I was gonna I was gonna mention the Kolstastic Kolstastic from Gigantic because uh, it is a fantastic uh, Kolsch inspired. <laughs> No, nah, it's, it's a flat-out Kolsch. It, it's a Kolsch-tastic, baby. All right. Uh, and then we have this uh, really, truly wonderful uh, barrel-aged Freem beer. It's Nectarine Golden Ale. So thanks, Freem. Here we go. Cheers, Jeff. Cheers, Patrick.
X-Ray.